Chapter 16 Protestants The word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. Martin Luther In the autumn of 1455, two goldsmiths went to court in the German city of Mainz. Their dispute, which was heard by the city's ecclesiastical authorities in the dining hall of a Franciscan friary, was about money. The first goldsmith, Johannes Gutenberg, had borrowed 1,600 guldens, a small fortune, to invest in equipment, labour and his own time, as he built a machine he hoped would change the nature of writing. The second goldsmith, Johann Fust, had loaned the money, hoping the returns on his investment would make him rich. But several years had gone by and Gutenberg had not turned a profit. Now Fust's patience had run out and he was seeking restitution by suing his business partner. Either Fust would have his money back or he would raid Gutenberg's workshop for equipment and goods to the value he was owed. For Fust, the case was a matter of pride and propriety. For Gutenberg, it was a matter of survival or defeat. The invention on which Gutenberg had been toiling was a printing press. Throughout the Middle Ages, text had generally been produced by clerks writing longhand with quills and pots of gum-based ink on stretched and treated animal skin known as parchment or vellum. The best clerks were either efficient copyists or gifted artists, and sometimes both. But none were superhuman. They worked page by page, one manuscript at a time. A long text, a Bible, a book of saints' lives, attracted by Aristotle or Ptolemy, would take a scribe hundreds or even thousands of hours to complete. Gutenberg saw this as hopelessly laborious and had spent much of his adult life seeking to revolutionise manuscript production. He was not the first to conceive of printing. The first printed scroll from China, which bears a date, a copy of a Buddhist text called the Diamond Sutra, was made with woodblocks in AD 868, while metal type was in use in Korea from the 13th century. But such technology was unknown in the West until now. Gutenberg's press would allow a small team of printers to set and replicate pages at previously unimaginable volume. Individual letters, known as movable type, would be cast from metal, then arranged together to form words, sentences and paragraphs. They would then be smeared with oil-based ink and pressed against sheets of vellum or Italian-made paper, another early medieval Chinese invention only recently imported to the West, as many times as required, printing identical leaves. Although all this was an expensive, difficult process which required considerable care and attention on the part of a skilled metal worker, it had the potential, Gutenberg thought, to render the old ways of manuscript copying obsolete and usher in a bold new age of the written word. The problem was, like all tech entrepreneurs in history, Gutenberg's breadth of ambition and imagination was matched only by his ability to spend other people's money. So when Fust called in his loan, it spelled disaster for Gutenberg's startup. In November 1455, the court in Mainz found in Fust's favour, and soon after, he was allowed to seize Gutenberg's printing presses, his letter types, and his workshop. Even worse, 
Fust took Gutenberg's commercial stock. For several years, Gutenberg had been working on a two-volume printed edition of the Bible. St. Jerome's 4th-century Latin Vulgate was to be given a 15th-century technological spin. He was all but finished printing it, and had been planning to sell two versions, one printed on paper and a more luxurious, hard-wearing vellum edition. Rumours about the Bible's impending release were whirring around European high society. A papal agent in Germany, called Aeneas Silvius Piccolomini, wrote in March 1455 to a Spanish cardinal to tell him that he had seen individual unbound sheets of it, was very impressed, but expected it to be nigh on impossible to buy a copy before they all sold out. The script is extremely neat and legible, not at all difficult to follow, wrote Piccolomini. Your grace would be able to read it without effort, and indeed without glasses. Now Fust, along with one of Gutenberg's apprentices, Peter Schoffer, took over and saw the project through to completion. Gutenberg's Bible was duly published by Fust and Schoffer, and sold before August 1456. It was a large book, designed to be read from a lectern. It had more than 1,200 pages across its two volumes, laid out in 42-line, double columns of black, blue and red type, with fine illuminated letters here and there, and occasional illustration in the margins. It looked very much like a manuscript, but it was not. Gutenberg's Bible was the first great printed book in the West. It was a landmark in the history of writing and publishing. More than that, however, it was the starting point of a medieval communications revolution. Mechanised printing changed Western culture in the 15th century as fundamentally and profoundly as the creation of the smartphone changed it at the turn of the 21st. It led to sweeping developments in literature and literacy, education and popular politics, cartography, history, advertising, propaganda and bureaucracy. Looking back from the 17th century, the philosopher-politician Sir Francis Bacon ranked printing alongside gunpowder and the shipman's compass in having changed the appearance and state of the whole world. But most important for our purposes, the printing press occupied a central place in the Reformation, the revolution that ripped apart the Roman church in the 16th century. First, printers like Gutenberg provided the tools by which the papacy plunged itself headlong into a crisis of ethics and institutional corruption. Then, printers allowed dissent against the established order to spread across Europe at breakneck speed. The result was that, in the space of a few short decades, medieval Europe descended into religious and political turmoil. As a new movement, Protestantism took root providing the first serious challenge to Catholicism in 1,000 years. Charting the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation is our last task before we bring our story of the Middle Ages to an end. It is a journey that will take us from the Mainz workshop of struggling gold worker Johannes Gutenberg to a mutiny in the streets outside the Papal Palace and a second, epoch-shifting sack of Rome. The Indulgences Scandal The earliest surviving Western document to have been printed with a movable type press, or at least the first with an identifiable date on it, 
is not a Bible or any other sort of book, but rather a document known as a papal letter of indulgence. It was produced in or near Mainz, perhaps by Gutenberg himself, although this is far from certain, and it was one of many identical such letters that were printed around the same time. The indulgence consists of 31 lines of text printed on a sheet of vellum. The only words on it that are not printed are the individualising details, which have been entered by hand, and tell us it was issued to a woman called Marguerite Krimer on the 22nd of October, 1454. In the printed text, this indulgence states clearly what it is for. It is addressed from a Cypriot nobleman called Paulinus Chap, who declares himself a spokesman for the King of Cyprus. That particular monarch was, in 1454, being hard-pressed by the Ottoman Sultan Mehmed II, who, fresh from the conquest of Constantinople, was taking aim at other Christian-held territories in the eastern Mediterranean. The indulgence explains that since the King of Cyprus is in desperate need of money, Pope Nicholas V has agreed that for three years anyone who donates to the church is entitled to go to a confessor and claim complete forgiveness for all their earthly sins. This was, of course, quite a big deal. We do not know what sins Marguerite Kremer had committed, which she felt she could not or did not wish to atone for by penance or other good deeds. But since 1215, confession had been compulsory once a year for ordinary Latin Christians, who usually made it semi-publicly in ceremonies during Easter. Sin and punishment in the afterlife were real concepts. So the offer of remission was attractive, which was why Marguerite had opened her purse to a papal representative and bought her indulgence certificate, dated and personalised. As long as she handed it over to a church confessor by the end of the indulgence's term, in this case the 30th of April 1455, confessed her sins and truly repented, Marguerite could consider her soul returned to a state of pious blotlessness. Should she be struck by lightning, or trampled by a cow, or carried off by the plague, or murdered by bandits, before she had the chance to commit another sin, her passage to heaven would be assured. By buying the indulgence, Marguerite Kremer had paid her fare to paradise. Indulgences like Marguerite's were commonplace across Europe during the later Middle Ages. The purpose of an indulgence was, at root, simple. It was a cross between a spiritual hall pass and banknote, a letter issued or underwritten by the Pope, which entitled the bearer to claim forgiveness for sins. The advantage to the sinner of buying such a document was straightforward. It reduced the time he or she was doomed to spend suffering the agonies of purgatory. The advantages to the church in selling it were equally clear. Profit and authority since cultivating a market in guilt and repentance had obvious implications for social control. Indulgences were issued en masse, a little like modern-day shares, government bonds or lotto tickets, and sold individually for hard cash. On its own, the printed Mainz indulgence issued to Marguerite Kremer might be considered a curiosity, an important artefact in the history of publishing, but little more. 
yet its significance goes far beyond its role in the story of the printed word. For the sale of papal indulgences was an issue which in the later 15th century came to assume central importance in critiques of the Roman Church as a whole, and one which was used by reformers in Northern Europe to pull apart papal authority and public confidence in every aspect of Catholicism. To understand how and why this was so, we need to cast our eye back a little way and put the development of the papal indulgence into the context of the broader history of the late medieval church. The apotheosis of papal power in the Middle Ages came in the early 13th century during the reign of Innocent III. For a short time, when Innocent was at the peak of his powers, extending crusading against new enemies both pagan and Christian, excommunicating monarchs who displeased him, and making sweeping reforms to church law, practice and governance in the Fourth Lateran Council, it seemed possible that the papacy was on course to convert its spiritual authority into political supremacy everywhere from the Holy Land to the Atlantic coast. After Innocent, however, no pope found a way to complete the job. Indeed, Innocent's legacy to his successors was an impossibly exaggerated sense of the church's proper position in directing the great affairs of the West. And as European monarchs deepened and extended their own powers in the 13th and 14th centuries, more often than not, popes found themselves at war with their subjects. During the first half of the 13th century, they fought with the Hohenstaufen rulers of Germany and Sicily, most notably the Emperor Frederick II. That dispute rolled into the long-running Gelf-Ghibelline Wars, which plagued Italy's city-states well into the 15th century. At the same time, Boniface VIII's violent clash with Philip IV of France during the 1290s and early 1300s culminated not only in Boniface's death, but with the wholesale removal of the papacy from Rome to Avignon, where popes sat for 67 years in the orbit of the French crown, a time Petrarch called the papacy's Babylonian captivity. The Avignon papacy lasted from 1309 until 1376, but its end did not make things much better. Only two years later, the Western Church fell into full-blown schism. A series of Italian popes sat in Rome, while French and Spanish-aligned anti-popes ruled from Avignon. In 1410, another anti-pope was set up in Pisa, meaning that for a brief period, there were three men who all claimed the papacy. It was a shambles. The Great Schism was finally resolved at the Council of Constance in 1414-18, which settled the papal tiara on the head of the Italian lawyer Martin V. Yet the residual damage to the reputation of the papacy was lasting and severe. Every man elected to the office still claimed to be the lineal heir of St. Peter and the leader of all the Christian faithful. Popes continued to exercise judgment on matters of world-changing importance, such as the treatment of non-Christian people in the territories of the New World. The blessings of popes and cardinals were still sought for new religious foundations, not least universities and cathedrals. And at the height of the Renaissance, popes spent vast sums glorifying Rome, endowing the palatial Vatican headquarters there with some of the most sublime artworks produced in all of human history. 
Yet, if there had ever been a time when popes were beyond criticism or reproach, by the late 15th century it was over. As the authority of popes was by turns eroded, challenged and squandered, critics felt ever freer to voice their disdain for the office and their dissatisfaction with the Roman Church at large. In the 1320s and 1330s, the English philosopher and friar William of Ockham saw fit to condemn Pope John XXII as a heretic and dismissed popes in general as nothing more than men in gaudy hats. No one is bound to believe the Pope in matters which are of the faith unless he can demonstrate the reasonableness of what he says by the rule of faith, Ockham wrote. In the early 14th century, the Bohemian heretic Jan Hus, who was influenced by the notorious Oxford theologian John Wycliffe, railed against papal corruption. Either Hus or someone in his circle produced a Latin polemic known as the Anatomy of the Antichrist, which explained at painstaking length why the Pope was in fact the devil, an abomination of desolation, the angel of the bottomless pit, a he-goat, and a wicked and profane prince. Hus was burned at the stake in 1415, and his supporters were butchered by crusaders. But long before the 16th century, when the Reformation is still generally said to have begun, papal supremacy had been downgraded from an assumption to a mere matter of opinion. When Hus took aim at corruption in Rome, one of his greatest bugbears was the sale of indulgences. The concept of the indulgence was an old one. It originated around the same time as the Crusades in the 11th century, when remission of sins was first granted in exchange for arduous pilgrimage, and subsequently on a large scale to the armies who marched off to fight Christ's enemies. After this, indulgences took on a life of their own, helped significantly by the invention of purgatory, which developed as a Catholic doctrine between 1160 and 1180. During the 12th and 13th centuries, indulgences without an obligation to fight Saracens or pagans were sold to willing customers around Europe on an ad hoc basis. And in 1343, Pope Clement VI formalised the system, effectively confirming that indulgences could be bought from approved clerics for cash. Thus was a busy market established, which Hus and many others like him considered a symbol of the intolerable money-grubbing that characterised the Roman Church. In the 1390s, Geoffrey Chaucer satirised indulgences and other clerical swindles in his Canterbury Tales, in which the entertainingly venal pardoner, a common term for an indulgence salesman, prefaces his tale with a pseudo-confession, boasting that he dupes gullible Christian folk into buying fake relics, and berates them so much for their sins that they rush to purchase indulgences from him, making him extremely rich. For mine intent, he says, is not but for to win, and nothing for correction of sin. Chaucer was sending up, with characteristic wry wit, what was by his day a well-worn caricature of the swindling papal huckster. Two decades later, Hus, angrier than Chaucer, not nearly as detached and ready to die for his cause, tapped the same theme. He complained that one pays for confession, for mass, for the sacrament, for indulgences, for churching a woman, for a blessing, for burials, for funeral services, and prayers. The very last penny 
which an old woman has hidden in her bundle for fear of thieves or robbery will not be saved, the villainous priest will grab it. It would be more than a century before gripes like these tipped over from the realms of satire, grumbling, and localized rebellion into full-blown revolution. But the seeds were sown. Given the money-making potential of indulgences, it should now be obvious why the advent of mechanised printing in the 1450s seemed like a boon to the church. Tickets to salvation, which had previously to be written out longhand, could now be mass-produced, and they were. In the quarter century that followed the publication of Gutenberg's Bible, print shops opened across Europe. In Oxford, London, Paris, Lyon, Milan, Rome, Venice, Prague and Krakow. Not long after, printers were operating in Portugal, the Spanish kingdoms, Sweden and Istanbul. Print runs for indulgences typically ran from 5,000 to 20,000 copies at a time, and they raised money for both the papal coffers and local projects, usually expensive building works. In 1498, the Barcelona-based printer Johann Luschner printed 18,000 indulgences to benefit the Abbey of Montserrat along with cheap handbooks describing miracles that had taken place at a battle between the Ottomans and the Knights Hospitaller. An inspiring story designed to motivate customers to contribute to the cause. Around the same time, fundraising for an Austrian monastery at Vorau saw an extraordinary 50,000 indulgences sold within a few months. So printing was booming, and so was the pardoning trade. Indulgence sellers now had at their fingertips a mass communication medium with which they could make their case, sell their wares and line their pockets. What was more, ordinary folk embraced the changing times. Pardoners were not foisting an unwanted product on recalcitrant people. Quite the opposite. Like 21st century social media users, medieval men and women rushed to engage with a system that offered them something they actually wanted, even as it turned each one of them into a profit node in a system bigger than they could comprehend. And we might not judge them too harshly for it. In a Western world that had been ravaged by the Black Death and tormented by ceaseless petty wars, this new means of offsetting sin and ensuring against the tortures of damnation must have seemed both necessary and welcome. It was only gradually over the course of more than half a century, that the indulgence industry became the target of widespread scholarly complaint, and even longer before it prompted full-blown cultural revolution. What tipped the indulgence business from a service into a scandal was at root simple greed. In the 1470s, Pope Sixtus IV, the notorious and extravagantly nepotistic pontiff whose enemies accused him of all manner of sexual predation and whispered that he handed out cardinal's hats to boys he fancied, found that his expenses were running away with him. The Italian wars demanded a programme of castle building in the Papal States. The Ottomans continued to threaten Christendom. Closer to home, Sixtus had a grand plan for the glorification of Rome, which included restoring or building dozens of churches paving and widening the city streets, bridging the Tiber and restoring the papal chapel in the Vatican. It is after Sixtus that the Sistine Chapel, with the world-famous ceiling eventually painted by Michelangelo, is named. 
One of Sixtus's favourite methods of raising the funds for this work was selling indulgences, and not only for the benefit of the living. Calculating that the market could be grown exponentially if indulgences were available to all souls, wherever they might reside. Sixtus was the first pope to state that indulgences could be bought on behalf of the dead. He slipped this new concept into a papal grant of 1476, which confirmed an existing indulgence for rebuilding the cathedral in the French city of Saintes. Encouraged in his thinking by a theologian and future cardinal called Raymond Perodi, Sixtus reformulated the Saint indulgence. It could now be used for intercession, meaning the relatives of souls presumed to be in purgatory could buy it for their late loved ones as well as themselves. The money collected was to be split between Saint Cathedral and a fund for crusading against the Turks. In practice, this meant that Sixtus would see a healthy portion of the profits of this indulgence flow into his papal coffers. What happened to the money once it was there was anyone's guess. Not surprisingly, this dramatic extension of the scope of indulgences raised eyebrows, including those of theologians at the University of Paris. But Sixtus was unmoved. He had bigger things to worry about than disapproving scholars, and the sale of indulgences was too useful a source of papal income to ignore. So the system was enlarged and extended, and indulgences continued to be granted by Rome, printed in their tens of thousands and sold to willing customers all over the West, particularly in Northern Europe, where the appetite for remission of sins and intercession for the dead seemed to grow stronger with every passing year. So Sixtus's papacy passed without any major opposition. Print shops continued to produce indulgences, and punters continued to snap them up. It was only in the early 16th century that disgruntlement about an increasingly corrupt system spilled over into outright attacks on the papacy and the church. The indulgence that sparked the trouble was launched in a bull known as Sacrosanctus. It was issued by Pope Leo X, the second son of Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici, with the ultimate aim of financing the wildly expensive reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And it caused a storm. The man whose objections to this scheme kindled the fire that became the Reformation was Martin Luther, a young professor at the University of Wittenberg, who did every bit as much as Gutenberg and Columbus to bring about the death of medieval Europe. The 95 Theses By the end of the 15th century, printing houses were handling all sorts of material besides Bibles and indulgence slips. Around the year 1500, there were some 27,000 books in print across Europe. And books were only part of it. Gutenberg himself printed calendars which detailed religious festivals or the best times of the month to administer bloodletting and laxatives. Early newspapers were in circulation, publicising all manner of wonderful events. In 1492, a German news sheet told of how a huge meteorite had crashed into the earth near the town of Ensisheim. The following year, Latin news sheets were printed in Paris, Basel and Rome telling of Columbus's adventures in the Indian Sea. In the same decade, 
the German Emperor Maximilian I circulated political announcements throughout his dominions on printed broadsides, and later in his reign he would commission anti-Venetian propaganda pamphlets inciting the people of Venice to rebel against their rulers. These were airdropped over Venetian armies in the field by balloon, much as PSYOPs material would be scattered from aircraft during the Great Wars of the 20th century. It is in this context that we must understand the publication of Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses, an expression of outrage at the practice of indulgence selling, which the author published in Wittenberg in the autumn of 1517. The Theses were a series of learned propositions pertaining to the state of the Western Church, prefaced with an invitation to all who disagreed to come and debate them with Luther. And they were designed for public consideration. Since Luther framed his critique of the Church in the form of an open invitation to an academic debate, it was a matter of protocol that he had them copied and distributed to potentially interested parties. According to later Protestant law, he did this by nailing a copy of them to the door of his local church. This is most likely myth. In fact, the earliest surviving copy of the theses is one Luther mailed to Albert, Archbishop of Mainz, on the 31st of October. But either way, the effect was extraordinary. Naturally, the easiest way to replicate the theses in the early 16th century was to have them printed at Luther's university. However, after their first publication, Luther lost control of the copying and reprinting process. When his theses entered the public domain, they touched a nerve, and they travelled. People heard about them, they wanted to read them, and printers reproduced them. Within weeks, as we would now put it, Luther went viral. In the last months of 1517, hundreds of copies of his theses were printed in Germany, some in the original Latin and others in vernacular translation. Within a year, Luther's writings were known to intellectuals and booksellers in England, France and Italy. Massive fame was never Luther's ambition or intention, and he suggested later that he was surprised by the furor his theses caused. But of course, the modern history of things going viral tells us that exponential publicity is as often accidental as deliberate. After 1517, the genie was out of the bottle. Luther once described himself as the son, grandson and great-grandson of peasants, who only had a chance at education because his father left the ancestral village and became a successful copper smelter in Mansfeld, in the modern German state of Saxony-Anhalt, around 100 kilometres northwest of Leipzig. Luther was born there in 1483. When he grew up, he went to the cathedral school in Magdeburg and university in Erfurt. In 1505, when he was 22, he had earned his master's degree and taken holy orders as an Augustinian friar. Three years later, he was a theology lecturer in Wittenberg, and there, the year before his 30th birthday, he received his doctorate in theology. He specialised in the Psalms and St Paul's letters to the Romans. There was, on the surface of things, nothing much unusual about him. In the course of Luther's theological inquiries, however, he became increasingly interested in the nature of God's forgiveness, which he believed was a matter of faith, rather than something which had to be earned by doing things. 
This may seem now like an arcane and technical distinction. Certainly, it sprang initially from Luther's near-neurotic personal obsession with his own imperfect soul. But as the professor worked through his thoughts, he reached conclusions that would have serious political resonance. In a world where the Roman church built its wealth on the basis that salvation was something to be acquired, either by doing penance or buying one's way closer to salvation, Luther's assertion that the way to heaven was through belief, not deeds, sat very ill. If all one had to do was believe, repent, love one's fellow humans, and pray for grace, it was hard to see the point of papal indulgences such as those offered by Sacrosanctus, which was promulgated in 1515 and aggressively preached in the German states by a Dominican friar called Johann Tetzel, just as Luther was in the depths of his theological research. Luther's theses can therefore be seen as the product of his own theological mud-wrestling, given a target in the form of Tetzel's indulgence preaching. As a result, they were both impassioned and politically inflammatory. The Pope, Luther proposed, in the sixth of his theses, cannot reduce any guilt. He went on. Indulgence preachers falsely claim that one is freed from all punishment and is saved by the indulgences of the Pope. But the Pope cannot reduce the penalties of souls in purgatory. He took aim at a catchphrase popularly associated with Tetzel, a neat ditty which ran, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Nonsense, wrote Luther. In fact, the indulgence system was a scam in which both sellers and buyers were at fault. The one who buys indulgences honestly is as rare as the one who is honestly contrite, wrote Luther. This was not a completely new critique. As long ago as the 12th century, the writer Peter of Poitiers had argued that it was outrageous to think that salvation could simply be bought. God does not consider how much is given, but from what intention, Peter wrote. But Luther was exceptionally frank and personal about it. Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned, together with their teachers. Clearly, this was going to be a problem. One of the reasons Luther's 95 Theses captured imaginations in 1517 was that the Pope against whom Luther railed, Leo X, was not just constitutionally spendthrift, but genuinely corrupt. Of course, Leo was a Medici, and in Italy this was always an aggravating factor in politics and religion. He also had a very faulty radar for doing the right thing. He was a generous patron of the arts, no doubt, and a cultured intellectual, but he seldom seemed to grasp how badly he compromised both himself and the papal office through his efforts to raise money for his various projects, ranging from rebuilding St. Peter's to fighting the Ottomans. The indulgence preached in Germany was a classic example of Leo's blasé attitude spilling over into naked fiscal turpitude. On a basic level, Sacrosanctus represented exploitation, the poor being squeezed to pay for the pleasures of the rich. Why does not the Pope whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money, Luther asked rhetorically in his theses. 
Yet there was more to it. Sacrosanctus was in fact the public face of a corporate conspiracy between the leading men of three powerful European families, the Medici, in the form of Pope Leo, Jacob Fugger, head of the Augsburg banking and mining dynasty, and a man often said to have been the richest in human history, and Albert, Archbishop of Mainz, a member of the politically influential Hohenzollern dynasty, and, not coincidentally, the man to whom Luther mailed the first copy of his theses. The nature of the agreement between these three was broadly thus. Albert, who was already Archbishop of Magdeburg, had been permitted by the Pope to become Archbishop of Mainz at the same time, which made him the most senior churchman in Germany, and meant he controlled two of the seven electoral votes which determined the identity of the German emperor. His brother already controlled a third. Vast fees were due to Rome as a tax on taking office as an archbishop, but Albert could afford these thanks to a loan from Fugger, who advanced the money on the basis that he would have the Hohenzollern and their electoral votes in his pocket. Albert, for his part, promised Leo he would do all he could to make sure that German Christians bought as many indulgences as possible, partly because his share of the proceeds could repay his debt to Fugger, and partly so that funds would flow rapidly to Leo in Rome for the completion of St. Peter's. For the parties involved, this was a neat arrangement by which they all got what they wanted, so long as the faithful did their part and kept pumping money into pardons. For onlookers, however, particularly German princes who worried about the excessive power of the Hohenzollern, it was a highly distasteful deal which demanded opposition. This intimate link between high politics and high theology is one reason why Luther's theses became the talk of Europe in 1517 and the years that followed. As he continued to write and preach and explore the wider fields of sin, forgiveness and the nature of God's love, arguments which might in other times have been of interest only to humanist scholars and other academics became highly germane to German electoral politics and the Medici papacy. Moreover, Luther's writings continued to circulate in print. He published more than any other man of his generation, with the possible exception of the brilliant Dutch humanist Desiderius Erasmus. It was as if he could not help himself. The modern edition of his complete works runs to over 100 volumes on all manner of subjects, bound together chiefly by the theme of Luther's refusal to dissemble or hide what he believed was the truth about God's love for mankind. Again and again, as Luther's writings riled defenders of the established order, he argued that he was interested only in divinity and grace, and not in the concerns of the world. Yet in time he came to accept that whenever he wrote, his words struck home. While I slept or drank Wittenberg beer, he once wrote, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or emperor inflicted such damage upon it. It took just a year, therefore, for this obscure German doctor to fall squarely into the sights of the church establishment. In October 1518, Luther was summoned to Augsburg to debate an Italian cardinal, Thomas Cajetan, an expert on Thomas Aquinas, the great 13th-century scholar whose writings were considered an intellectual pillar of church orthodoxy. 
Although Luther was aware that there were already threats to his liberty and even his life, he went to Augsburg under the protection of Frederick III, the Wise, Elector of Saxony and one of the leading anti-Hohenzollern nobles in Germany. However, after three days of feisty debates with Cajetan, Luther became convinced that if he stayed, he risked arrest for heresy. He fled and went back to his books. Yet controversy would not now leave him alone, nor he it. In summer 1519, he went to a debate at the University of Leipzig, where he let his tongue run away with him to the extent that he denied papal authority on matters of scripture and argued that the late loathed bohemian heretic Jan Hus might have crossed the line occasionally, but was by and large a good Christian. Unsurprisingly, the following summer, Luther was officially condemned by Pope Leo himself in a papal bull called Exurge Domine, Arise, O Lord. In response, Luther burned a copy of the bull outside Wittenberg's city gates, and so the battle lines were drawn. In a work written that same year, Luther called the Romanists, Leo, his supporters, and in effect anyone else who disagreed with him, the fellowship of Antichrist and the devil, who had nothing of Christ but the name. And all of this was played out in public, via letters and books, which were printed and circulated in the universal scholarly language of Latin. Not surprisingly, by the end of 1520, Pope Leo had reached the limit of his patience. On the 3rd of January 1521, he excommunicated Luther, making him a formal enemy of the church and all its faithful people. It was now incumbent on all who called themselves Christian rulers to stand against the precocious doctor. But if this was intended to silence Luther, it did quite the opposite. Although Leo could not have known it, catastrophe was set in motion.